I'm just realizing I have several beverages and no cup to drink them from, so I'll be back in one sec. <laughs> no worries. I'm Robbie McDonald. And I'm Jordan Lane. We're two writers who've been friends for 15 years. Holy moly. Recently, we both discovered we have the shared experience of figuring out we have ADHD in midlife. Holy Shit, I Have ADHD is a podcast for adults discovering their neurodivergence, as well as a way to spread awareness of ADHD. This is a podcast about ADHD, hosted by two people with ADHD. While each episode has a general theme, our meandering trains of thought mean that we often cover several other themes in the process. We are not experts, simply two people sharing their experiences of discovering their ADHD in midlife. If you suspect you or someone you know may have ADHD, speaking to a medical professional should be part of your discovery journey. I kind of liked it. Like once I got going with it, it was sort of enjoyable. I just got super intimidated by all the things. I find that it's it's a place that and doing music creation in mm-hmm. a DAW. Um, well, music creation live, like playing drums and stuff, has its own sort of flow that comes along with it. But I definitely mm-hmm. lose time and get lost in that detail-oriented editing mm-hmm. and processing work for hours. And I love it. Like, it's it's a very positive experience for me, so. Yeah. Um, I just see Rena is about to enter the room, so I'm going to oh, her, and then I'm going to start recording. Rena, hello. Rena. Hello. Hello. Hi. Can you hear and see me? You can hear and see me. Yes, indeed. Hey. Hey. Hi. How are you, my friend? I'm all right. How are you? Doing great. So Robbie meet Rena. Rena Robbie. Hi, Rena. I'm uh, really fangirling on the scarf thing you got going on there. It's well, it's not intentional by any means. Um, it's just friggin' cold in my studio. Oh, and my closet is open. What a mess. I should have looked around the room before I invited people into my space. <laughs> this is every scarf that I had at my studio. I put them all on because it's freezing here today. And um, we're the only people in the building right uh-huh. now. The studio is the only apartment with anybody in it in the building so nobody else has heat on like the 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 suite downstairs doesn't have heat on and the people next door don't have heat on so it's like if nobody's been here for two days the heat hasn't been on for two days and so like maybe it'll warm up by the time i leave yeah there's not even like the ambient heat (laughs) and you're in montreal for those that don't know so it's probably really freaking cold right now yeah yeah, it, today is a little bit warmer than it's been. So it's only minus 11 today, um, <laughs> but it has been as low as minus 20 this past week. So, yeah, or, warming up. <laughs> right. Only minus 11. That's only a Canadian can say that, right? Like, I looked at my phone this morning and was like, oh, sweet, only minus 11. <laughs> I was actually genuinely happy about it. But. <laughs> You can get up for yeah. a walk in that. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so, yeah, so I have a long history with Robbie and an even longer one with you, Rena. Um, how do you remember us meeting each other? Oh, my God. I honestly don't know how we first met, um, but we we know each other through the all ages community. Mm hmm. Um, and and I, I, can't, I couldn't identify the day that we first met, but I know we had a, a lot of fun together as, Definitely. as young people. <laughs> so my, my recollection um, is meeting you, I would have been 15, this would have been 1997 at the Multicultural Center, December sometime, um, at a show that had about seven bands on the bill. And as I recall it, you and uh, Tyson and Jeff Kraft and a few other people were extremely friendly to me and my bandmates, which was so great 
because we were just utter posers coming out for our first show and we had our our hair spray dyed like bright green and magenta with like the hair dye in a can you would get at San Francisco RIP shout out San Francisco and yeah so just like just complete like well, we've seen what, you know, uh, the guys in Gob look like. And so we're just going to like do that, even though that's not what our music sounds like at all. But you were very uh, friendly <laughs> and welcoming to us nonetheless. And that was um, that's my recollection of how we met and kind of the start of our friendship. And that's geez, that's over 20 years ago now. At least over 20 years ago. <laughs> but I'm glad your your memory was that uh, we were friendly and welcoming because um, I I like to think that I was always friendly and welcoming throughout my life. Um, and so it's good to get that feedback. You know, I'm always worried when somebody's like, I remember when we met, I'm like, oh God, what was that first impression really going to be? I'm, I'm a little unpredictable, I think. That's that's interesting. That's a conversation that I was having yesterday with a friend of mine. Um, and I was talking about how every once in a while when I bump into somebody that I haven't seen and kind of catch up and there's always a, do you remember? And I'm like, every time I hear a, do you remember? And it's like, shit. Here's a story about when I was an enormous asshole to someone, but in a way that was probably like pretty funny. And that's usually what it is. And like, I recognize that this is a person who was just lashing out all the time because he was just so, so fucking insecure. But it's still like there's a combination of like sympathy for myself and I'm mad at myself that I treated this person like an asshole. And then this like, but that was also like pretty funny. And like, you can kind of appreciate the dunk too. I don't know. It's a weird kind of mix of things, but I'm realizing that that's, Part of that is that I don't have a filter because I have ADHD. So how did you figure that out that you had ADHD? How did I figure out that I had ADHD? It's quite a story, really. Um, never suspected it at all throughout my life. Although looking back, it definitely, I should have been diagnosed as a kid or as a teenager. When I first got depressed, I think I should have been diagnosed. And maybe even when I was younger. But because I was uh, a perfectly fine achiever in school, like on a roll all the way through school, why bother having your kid checked for a learning disability or even mention it, right? So, so I, and I think my parents were shocked when I finally had the diagnosis in my 30s. I got the diagnosis in my 30s. Um, and so it was after my partner passed away. So I consider myself a widow, even though we weren't married because I, I deal with like partner grief. Um, and that was nine years ago, this coming February. So a long time ago, but, um, when he died, it was a traumatic situation and it was super overwhelming. And so I saw a grief counselor immediately, like <laughs> the coroner was still, it was in the house and was like, so do you guys want to get set up with counseling? And I was like, oh my God, yeah. Can the counselor come right now? Like when wow. do we start? Cause I, I definitely need this. And so immediately did that and worked through grief therapy for a couple of years um, and did a lot of work on it. And, and I would say really successful work. Like I, I value my grief experience in a really positive way. Um, but that's a totally different podcast. But so through that, and I've always been a depressed person on and off. I've, I've dealt with depression and sleep issues and all kinds of stuff. And through doing that and doing extensive grief therapy and general, you know, counseling, after I felt recovered from the grief, I realized I was still depressed and still felt like I couldn't really function and was like, well, I did all this psychological work and I still feel depressed. What's up with that? And so I spoke to my doctor about the possibility of it being chemical. And he linked me up with a psychiatrist um, who diagnosed me with ADHD um, quite accurately, I would say. <laughs> 
So, so that's that. I guess I would have been 33, although I don't remember. Like, and we're talking about memory stuff here a little bit. I have serious memory issues due to the PTSD of the grief, but I think also with the ADHD. Like, I don't ask me what year something happened in. Don't ask me if I know this person from 20 years ago because I, I might, but I'll need something to trigger that memory to pull it out. Um, and then, and then with the the grief and PTSD, there are total black holes. Like there are people who I know I've met, but I have no memory of them. Or like, there's just, just whole huge chunks of time that are missing from the last nine years. And uh, I apologize to everyone that's listening who I have forgotten. <laughs> it's not my fault. But so that's my diagnosis story anyway. So the memory thing is interesting to me because um, I I remember having, uh, this may have actually been the last time I saw you in person was over at your house with a bunch of other people for a little sort of um, impromptu gathering. Um, and uh, I had what is, I'm realizing now an ADHD linked experience and a memory one, but a common experience for me throughout my life that I have always hated myself for, which is the experience of being like, hey man, I don't think we've met I'm Jordan and them being like, we have met dozens of times and I'm just like, fuck. And you know, like we all look a little different as time goes on, but yeah, I'm like, I, I, I have the space now in this lens of ADHD to be like, okay, no, like that's still kind of an asshole move. And that guy probably felt mm. shitty, but like you're predisposed to having these kinds of memory gaps around things and due to things that are entirely outside of your control. So that's something that I'm being more forgiving about. But I had a similar experience of um, dealing with depression and eliminating all of these other causes, including getting sober about six months ago, um, drugs and alcohol. And then when my memory still was as foggy and shitty and I still didn't have the executive function and all this other stuff, that's when I came back to the ADHD thing and like, okay, maybe I should take this a little bit more seriously and kind of look into that again. So I really related to that. Totally. And I think that's how most of, of the people who are discovering it as adults are discovering it is they're like, well, I've tried to resolve everything. What else could it be? And or, or people are discovering it because of stuff like this or, you know, conversations on social media and seeing themselves in something that they're reading about and going, wait a second, maybe this will help me. <laughs> yeah. So. I'm seeing a lot of that on Twitter and somebody made a snarky comment about it being trendy, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's because this year has forced so many people People to stop, slow down, and all the coping mechanisms that we've built up sometimes over decades are gone. And then it's like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, having to to take a closer look at it. I don't think anyone would choose to have this. And I think using that term is just that's like online snark, like to the next level. Just not necessary. We're kind. You know. I think we're discovering it more. People are uncovering it way more. And like you said, because the, the structures are gone, the things that kept people with ADHD on track and the systems that they had learned to function in are gone. And so now they're going, wait a second, without structure, I'm useless. And and they're learning about it. But I think, you know, like to, to call it trendy is, of course, super offensive. Um, mm. But I just think as a society in general, we're more aware of neurodivergences than we've ever been. And so... Maybe it's trendy to learn about it. It's cool. It's cool to learn about it <laughs> and decide if you want to have it. That's 
that's okay. But yeah. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that part of it too is is that well, frankly, there's been a systemic failure um, in every country at any every level of government to do anything for us during the pandemic. So what we're seeing is these ad hoc support systems, and in lieu of actual mm. counseling or resources, a lot of a lot of times what people the only thing they have is sharing their story and commiserating with people who've gone through similar things. So I think that there's a there, there's certainly a power to it and there's a healing and it's just sad that it also has to come with this kind of monetization of grief on a public platform as the adjunct to people getting uh, people to relate to the experiences that they're having. That's that's really true. And it's it's interesting that you bring that up. I don't know if you know what I've been doing on TikTok lately. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that, Rena? <laughs> so I started a TikTok with the intent of advertising my studio. So I'm normally a touring sound engineer. Like I normally would be traveling around the world doing sound for various bands. Of course, can't do that. And so my idea at the beginning of the pandemic when I lost my career was to market my recording studio and try to make it a thing. I've been too depressed for the last year to really do that well in any way and and haven't made it happen. But I, I started the TikTok thinking that I would use it to market the studio. And then in early December, I realized how depressed I was and I ended up posting a TikTok about how depressed I was, where I was like, I just realized I'm super depressed. And I put one of my own songs in the background of it just for fun because it was there and I could. And so that went like semi-viral. It's up to 100,000 views now, wow. that particular video. And over the course of a few days, I had a couple thousand followers. And so I just was like, well, I'm going to talk about my depression because clearly that's what people want to hear about. They don't care about anything else I'm posting. And so I, I made this plan to choose a thing that I would work on that I thought would help alleviate my depression, make a video about the thing that I would work on and then work on it and mm. then make a video about if it helps me or not. Mm. And like truthfully over the last month and a half since I started, I guess it's been two months since I started doing this, I am doing mentally better than I've maybe ever done in my life <laughs> because I'm really consciously focusing on my, my depression and my ADHD. So once I sort of lifted out of the depression phase, I'm, I've been flipping my videos over to talking more about my ADHD and, and things to do to control it. Um, but so that was interesting. But then the, the connection, you mentioned monetization. So the connection with why I said that I put one of my own songs in the background is the music is monetized for the music creators on TikTok. So I'm earning potentially three cents. I'm either earning three cents per play or 10% of three cents per play. Either way, it's a lot of money. So at this point, I'm up to like 200,000 views of my videos with my songs in the background. So that could be as much as, you know, $6,000 yeah. for me. Wow. Or it's only 600. I won't know until the Ew. end of the quarter exactly how it pays out, but still it is like, it is making me some dollars. <laughs> which is and on your own terms. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I've found this loophole in the system. I mean, I guess you have to have a video go semi-viral for it to be lucrative in any way, but, but I've found a little bit of a loophole and I'm going to learn more about it over the next little while and see if I can make it something that people can actually make use of in some way. But, but that's what I've been up to in terms of sharing my story with the public and learning how positive that is for progress. At least for me in this particular context, I've made indescribable amounts of positive progress in the last month. So 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel like the creative piece that you're describing too is your, because I've watched some of your videos and what I really love about it too, is you're creating a bit of accountability yeah. for yourself too, right? It's like, I'm going to do this thing where I have to be up at nine. And if I'm not there, people are going to notice, right? Because, you know, it's, it's an accountability and I, and I love that, right? So you're, you're sharing this, this vulnerability that is just so palpable. Like I, I almost had goosebumps just watching just how authentic you were being. And no wonder they're going viral because people are hungry for that. Right? I, I guess they are. Yeah. Starved for authenticity. And that's like mm. when I when I first joined TikTok, I was watching other videos and was like so annoyed by the sort of sociopathology of somebody looking at their phone camera and being like, hey, I'm cool. You like me. And I was like, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can do that. And if you go way back in my TikTok feed, there's one where I try to talk to the camera where I'm like, how can I possibly talk to you? This is the dumbest thing I've ever tried to do. But I don't know how I started to become okay with it. I guess I just got so depressed that I didn't care anymore, you know, where I was like, well, here I am doing this. Um, and it, it's been okay. I am a little bit embarrassed when I look at my main page and I see all these the, the images of my own face being like, <laughs> I find it a little narcissistic, but um, maybe I'm a narcissist. I don't know. I've not really thought about that. <laughs> I think that what it is is that it's a healthy amount of self-love and a healthy amount of self-expression. But as ADHD people, we're reluctant to give ourselves that space because we're hyper-focused on pleasing other people and we hold ourselves up to these standards. And like for me, I had a very small time-bound thing that was supposed to happen last night and I completely fuck off forgot about it and so I like realized this close to midnight that I didn't do this thing I was supposed to have done by February 1st and I just I had a meltdown like I had a little like and there's are there any real consequences am I accountable to anyone outside myself nope but that felt so real and so we're reluctant to give ourselves the credit and put ourselves out there like that because we're afraid of getting criticized or attacked back I'd yeah say. yeah the, the fear and it, it, i guess the definition is imposter syndrome is mm -hmm. like something that adhd people are prone to um and so you fear that when you put yourself out there people are going to notice that you're an imposter and don't and don't deserve to be there um yeah. but you you touched a bit on the the point about accountability which is the main reason that I'm doing the TikTok is it, it isn't necessarily for other people at all. It's strictly for my own accountability because that's the puzzle piece that has been missing during COVID times is like, I can totally put on a happy face and do a great job of anything for anybody else. But as soon as it's for me, I will just procrastinate on it. If, if it, my deadline is self-imposed, it's meaningless. And, and so this has made me at least believe that there are people that it's meaningful to. And so that's given me the push to do it. I, I think at some point I need to learn how to find my own needs as meaningful and not just do things to please other people. Um, but at this point, you know, I've, I've come up with a trick, a loophole that makes me believe that I'm pleasing other people. And so therefore I'm doing something for myself. So that's, <laughs> that's <the trick. laughs> the people pleasing piece is so exhausting right um and you know jordan and i have talked about this too and um it's chronic across adhd um lifespans right that we learned quite early that people pleasing is more important than our own needs i saw some statistic about like 10 
what is 10 to 20,000 more negative messages are received by ADHD kids than, than kids, than, you know, um, neurotypical kids, for example. So even before any kind of potential for diagnosis or anything, we've already been receiving messages that tell us the way that we see the world is flawed. So we start people-pleasing in order to um, adopt, in order to belong, in order to um, just feel part of, right? So when, when you're talking about that, it is and the more I read about this, Gabor Mate and people, you know, they talk about it so beautifully. He talks about it specifically very beautifully, but um, our brains don't develop in the way um, that they, um, you know, that quote, neurotypical brains develop. And so we've spent all this time people pleasing, and then we don't know how to undo that. Um, as we get older and discover why it is that we've been doing it. That's really interesting. I didn't know that statistic and haven't thought much about the the early childhood development and how it relates to ADHD and, and specifically to my diagnosis. But of course, you would be interacted with differently by adults and people around you as a child if you were behaving differently. And so that's going to have an influence. And so I might do a little meditating on my own childhood and put some more thought into like what my childhood experience was because I haven't really, I just sort of disregarded that part of my life as as relevant to my current development, um, but it's probably more relevant than I realize. So thank you for that mm. up. <laughs> yeah, and it can definitely be, you know, gender-based as well. Um, my, my mother was a teacher way back in the day, and when I discovered my ADHD just a few months ago, we had a conversation, and she said back in the 70s, it was hyper little boys that were, that were being given Ritalin and um, getting diagnosed, um, whereas, you know, dreamy, stare out the window little girls, like that was actually kind of considered a virtue in a way, because at least you were being quiet. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like the, the the differences in how it, it shows up in the genders too has a lot to do with it and the way that little girls were perceived then. I mean, I hope that's all changing now, but still. Yeah, that's the I think that's a big, big part of it too. Yeah. And as far as gender goes, I mean it's it's trying to change. <laughs> yeah. We're trying to change it. Um yeah. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, Rena, it's something you touched on earlier about the childhood aspect. Um, you mentioned that uh, your parents were surprised to hear that you were diagnosed, um, but you said that there were certain things about it that were obvious in retrospect. So what were some of those things? I was bored a lot. Um, school was extremely boring. Um, I, I was always a clock watcher, even in areas where I was happy, like or it, when working on something that I enjoy. I was still a clock watcher. You know, gymnastics is a really good example. I was a gymnast. I loved doing gymnastics and we trained, you know, four hours a day, five days a week. But I was constantly watching the clock because I wanted to be doing whatever was coming next or, you know, every class in school watching the clock, getting ready for what's coming next. And I think that's part of how my ADHD functions is that I'm watching the big picture all the time. I'm watching all of the elements within my big picture of my life. And that is so influenced by what's going to be next and being ready for it. And so that was definitely a symptom of it is like, I wasn't focused on what I was doing in the moment. I was, I was doing what I was doing in the moment, but maybe not as well as I would have if I wasn't also preoccupied with what was going to be coming next when it was over. So that's kind of a big one um, that I think back on. I'm not sure if there was much else. I, I didn't really have any behavior problems. I had a few teachers. I had a social studies teacher in 10th grade that I argued with pretty heavily. And I think that was another situation where it was an identification of my 
my neurodivergence of just like like totally ready to shout have a political shouting match with my social studies teacher when I was 14 you know (laughs) but who knows maybe normal kids do that too yeah so something that I'm interested in um you mentioned that you're a gymnast and as I recall you're also a dancer and I believe you played ringette or hockey I did I played ringette as a kid so my dad was a like a national team hockey coach and so and he had three daughters and so we all had to do the closest thing to hockey which in the 80s was ringette so in the late 80s early 90s I played ringette and then I was a national level rhythmic gymnast for a long time which translated into studying dance at university and so when I was studying dance at university I I injured myself really badly and just there was sort of this weird coincidental story of like getting injured coming into some money and finding an audio class (laughs) that happened to cost the same amount of money and ended up taking the the audio Uh course so and that's how I ended up being a sound engineer for the last 20 years of my life so (laughs) I I remember now that there was um between those two you were you were tattooing for a little bit too and trying out some other things I remember yeah Yeah, I did visual arts for a year at university as well so like I'm I paint and I draw and that kind of thing so pretty much everything arts related my my brain is really good at um and but that that didn't work out the the tattooing thing (laughs) I got tattoos but (laughs) (laughs) oh I was just admiring your tattoos earlier so that's yeah um the question I did have about tattooing though at the time that you were exploring it were you finding that it was still super male dominated and that's why it was difficult to break into it's funny you should ask that I wonder did you actually know why I stopped tattooing and that's why you asked that or or is that just no no um, literally a really wonderful guy hired me to be his apprentice and he really wanted me to to learn how to do it he wanted a young woman to learn how to do it and he ended up connecting with a business partner after about six months of us working together and this new business partner who he desperately needed because the, the original guy couldn't afford to keep his shop open alone but his new business partner was adamant that women could not tattoo and he treated me like shit he forced me to mop the floors like I had already tattooed human beings by this point when he started but he was like no way you shouldn't be going near people you're just a girl you're gonna mop the floors you're gonna make the coffee like he he was the worst most sexist human I've ever encountered in my life he was horrific um and fortunately he was only there for a couple of months before the shop went under and got repossessed the the repo men literally came and took everything away which was for the best but I just never tried again I just didn't bother like pursuing another apprenticeship somewhere else because it was super disheartening so yeah that was driven out by a sexist oh I'm sorry and and that is part of what happens often with ADHD um when when something becomes a disappointment it becomes a catastrophe too right it's like this it's not that it just sucks it's just like this is just the end and it's really hard yeah. to even want to fight for something after especially after it just blow it up like that yeah <laughs> blow it up was and it, move on something different <laughs> yeah was, was that in Calgary Rena, that that happened that was in Calgary yeah yeah uh, you probably don't want to name the shop or- <laughs> in the shop it was called Lucky Devils it was on 4th Street right next to Mongolia Grill it was only there for a year maybe less than a year Lucky Devils Jay Maserol was the original owner he was the great guy he was great um, yeah. another guy came to tattoo there for a bit named Jay Slinger who was also cool and I actually don't remember the name of the asshole my brain blocks it out 
out. And this is a thing that Good. my is it just erases things I don't like. And so that guy was erased. I couldn't That's even tell you what he looked like. If I passed him on the street, wouldn't recognize him. No idea. <laughs> That's probably a good thing. He doesn't deserve any more of your attention anyway. Exactly. I'm glad for that for you, but I'll be honest, I wanted to drop in some air horns after that name and just like, bear, 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 bear. <laughs> I'm sure I could ask around and find out what is it, reminded of what his name was, but you know, it's just, it's an interesting example of the memory lapses yes. and how they're mm-hmm. sort of selective, but they're sort of like precise and honed in on things I don't like. I'll just forget. <laughs> so going back to the gymnastics thing for a sec here, I'm curious because your experiences then in childhood and adolescence were different from mine in terms of you had a, uh, a steady outlet to connect with your body and expend energy physically. And yeah. that's something that I have only come to realize the value of in the last five years. And it's fantastic for me and I love it. And I just didn't have that. So I wonder if that's part of why maybe you weren't as symptomatic in childhood probably probably very much connected to it and i don't i don't know how new this research is but i have learned recently about some research into lactic acid Mm. and how Mm. it is essentially an antidote for adhd and so lactic acid is the chemical that your muscles expend through physical activity and so when you feel like when your muscles are stiff and sore that's because there's lactic acid built up in there from from physical exertion and so when that goes through your bloodstream and it inevitably through your brain that's essentially a cure for your adhd Mm. apparently i feel like this is pretty new like within the last year type of research because i've never heard about this before Um, but so it's not just the fact that exercise releases serotonin and other good chemicals it's like literally the, the the byproduct waste product of physical activity is the an anecdote for your for your adhd so that's pretty cool and i'm i'm still sort of recovering from my depression and trying to be really gentle with the things that i introduce into my life but i've started doing yoga every day but i know that for like real lactic acid output um you need more like running or weight training or whatever and so i'm working up to that with the the consciousness that that can be my substitute for adhd medication i can i can be an exerciser again but yeah (laughs) definitely it it helped when i was a kid probably for sure yeah um speaking of medication yeah uh, so you mentioned um that you tried for 14 months when you were first diagnosed, but it didn't go well. It went really poorly. Um, okay. I, I tried a lot of different things. I tried a variety of, of approaches. I tried all kinds of ADHD meds. We tried also specifically like depression, antidepressants medications. We tried sleep drugs to try to make me sleep more so I'd be more awake during the day. I don't do well this I've learned that I do not do well with medication with the ADHD stuff. I would make it like a week or two weeks and it would, I think it would be effective at treating the ADHD. But by the, by the time we hit the two week point, the side effects would be so overwhelming that it wasn't worth being on the medication anymore. Um, so like I, I definitely had bouts of being suicidal and when it really came down to it, it was when I was on Vyvanse, it was week two on the lowest possible dosage of Vyvanse. And I was sitting on my couch and you know, it just would make me numb my brain would slow down to the point of just stopping. And I was sitting there on the couch, like stopped being like, okay, what am I going to do? And my cat walked by and I was like, I should kill the cat. And oh I was God. like, I was like, mm, I don't think you actually want to kill the cat. I think you like the cat. Like, I think you love the cat. And I was like, yeah, but I should just kill it just to see. And I was like, 
no, I think you should call your doctor. <laughs> I was like, okay, we're going to call the doctor. They're like, hey, so I'm taking this new medication and I'm thinking about killing my cat. And so I'm wondering if the two things are related. And they were like, all right, come on in to the hospital. <laughs> so, Holy shit. That so after that, I then we switched to antidepressants. That was when we stopped trying ADHD treatments and switched to antidepressants. And I still didn't, I didn't feel like they were working well for me. And the other issue with the medication was so so I'm a sound engineer and tour manager and to do those jobs you are navigating complex systems very quickly um and so my my ADHD is effectively a superpower in my career because I can keep track of a lot of things happening at one time maybe none of those things are being handled perfectly and impeccably but I can really look at a lot of moving parts at the same time and rapidly bounce from one to the other and bounce back and 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 it's totally necessary for me to be able to do my job well and so trying to run a show when I was on the meds was like I would just be looking at one channel on the console and be like oh yeah that's that one channel sounds really good and then you know somebody would be yelling at me to you forgot to put the towels out or like you forgot whatever I'm like but I'm EQing this (laughs) and meanwhile the snare drum is way too loud and the doors are locked and somebody needs to be let in and and you know you forgot to book a hotel room I'm like but this guitar so it it didn't work (laughs) with my job so I do a lot better in my career and my life, not medicated and using my ADHD to my advantage. So something I was curious about that, because I thought about the multitasking end of it, but something else I was wondering about is in terms of in talking to other ADHD people, I feel like we all have some degree of sense blindness or sense shittiness in one or two senses, and then like a little bit of sensory superpowers in one or two others. And I'm guessing that hearing is one of yours. And so for me, like when I'm looking at something and I'm copy editing it, typos just jump out at me off the page. And I'm curious if that's what like a bum frequency is. Oh, yeah. that just, that's just like right there. Oh yeah, totally, totally. Um, any kind of, and, and I can identify what the problem is and where it's coming from really easily like i'm very good at sifting through the the sonic spectrum and identifying what something is yeah, yeah. Mm. that's super and cool. do you also yeah uh, do you also feel like with you know tour managing and I, I think jordan had talked about this before a little bit too like all the different kind of personalities you would come up with you would be coming into contact with on any given day or night um at a show right i'm sure there's a lot of pretty oh yeah oh a full spectrum of human behavior from top to bottom in the concert industry <laughs> right and and i'm pretty good at navigating interactions with all of them like getting a read on a person and sort of giving back to them what i think they need to see in order to get along with me so mm. and is would you say it's hierarchical because we've been talking a little bit about this too and i'm realizing that that's one of my biggest challenges is i i cannot abide hierarchies especially when someone's in a position that's a fucking idiot i can't yeah. do it right yeah. um but it sounds like maybe you're not having to deal with that as much but maybe you can in the roles that I was in I didn't have to deal with it as much for the most part like for the most part I was the top of the food chain most mm-hmm. of the time as the tour manager that I'm the top of the hierarchy on that one and uh the, of course the band members rank above you in terms of you know mm-hmm. getting what they want and when they want it you're there to please them but most of the bands I work with don't want to be the decision makers they want to defer all the decision making to their tour manager so they and they also understand that they can't be given the world because I, I generally don't work with the like most 
top echelon artists. I work with mid-level artists that know that they're not making a ton of money. So they don't demand and request things in the same way. And they understand when I have to say no, and they're fully prepared to like ask for something instead of tell me to do something. So, so I didn't run into that problem a lot of the time. I did run into that problem working for the Strokes. That's sort of the biggest band that I ever worked for, where like the boys in the band are the king, you know, and they've, they'll throw money on whatever and just to make it happen. And so you really have to do exactly what they need when they need it, regardless of how absurd it is and how inconvenient it is for you with no regard for like your whatever you're up to at the moment and how important that might be. And I really believe everybody's equal, you know, like ethically, morally, every person is equal. And so if I was in the middle of making arrangements with the runner and the runner was busy and was about to do his task, but the one of the guys in the band needed something immediately, I was expected to inconvenience the runner, have him drop whatever he's doing. Even if he's waiting in line about to pay for the thing that I needed him to pick up for me, he has to drop it and go and do what the band guy needs, you know? And, and, and I, I just couldn't make that happen a couple times where I was like, this is so disrespectful to this poor guy that's gone all the way to the other end of Manhattan <laughs> on, on New Year's Day to try to get a thing. Oh, he has to drop it so that, he, I don't know. There was just like a, a few stories like that where I was like, well, I just don't think that I can work for people who are blindly demanding because they can. And they can, and that's their prerogative. They've got the money to demand it, but I'm not the person to get it for them. So mm. yes, hierarchy is a problem for me. <laughs> it's great when I'm at the top, though. <laughs> but being at the top of the hierarchy, no problem. Right? No, no problem okay. at all. I'm fine. It's super fun. <laughs> <laughs> but it was partly, partly because you believe everyone is equal and believes that everyone should be treated with dignity and respect. So you would be an ethical manager in that. I'm case. a just ruler. <laughs> And a just ruler. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious with the set of skills that you developed as a tour manager and in that background, um, if you've ever thought about transitioning your career into something like a fixer, like one of these guys that hangs out with Bourdain and just makes sure that like, you know, when they're getting kidnapped, they have the right amount of currency to get out of it or whatever. Well, I mean, that's that's something that you do as a tour manager for a lot of these guys. You think I haven't bailed anybody out of jail? You know, <laughs> <laughs> you got any stories you want to tell? Somebody get your <laughs> but definitely. So yeah, I've kind of thought about that. And right when I first started with the Strokes, the the reason why they were hiring another tour manager on their tour management team, I was actually the production coordinator. I wasn't supposed to be tour managing at all. I was just supposed to be dealing with the crew. But mm. because those boys need what they need, there was just kind of this swirling of staff and they didn't know who to put where because their tour manager had recently been hired as Julian's personal assistant. And so when I first started, I was like, oh, her personal assistant job looks kind of interesting because she's just working directly with this person to make his life successful. And and that I, maybe that's something that I could do. And then as I watched it happen a little bit more, I was like, no, I couldn't do that for somebody. I couldn't, I actually couldn't. You know, I'd prefer to just live for myself rather than this, but yeah. <laughs> that's interesting, yeah, because like I'm, I've been very, very broke the last year, but I haven't been beholden to anyone but myself and that's yeah. been very, very satisfying. So, yeah. <laughs> totally, I feel you on the broke front. <laughs> but we're getting by. We're getting by. It's going to yep. be okay, right? So speaking of career transitions, I know that that's kind of a thing that's uh, that's going on for you right now. 
now. Do you want to talk about that at all? Sure, sure. I still don't really know what's happening um, because, of course, I can't do touring. I didn't necessarily want to do touring anymore anyway, though. And so I think mm. as this unfolds further, it will have been a, a good blessing. I definitely had planned to take a, a lot of time off when I was forced to take time off. Like I was already going to take March off anyway and was hoping to also take April off and, and really got my wish. Like I'll be taking two Aprils off now. Um, but so I've now been forced to sort of decide what I would do instead of touring. Um, and I, I managed to get that government subsidized this time of figuring out what I want to do with my life. I, I got really lucky that we, we had some benefits to keep us afloat. And so I have gone back to school. Essentially, I'm, I'm doing like a correspondence online course to learn basic electrical engineering. It's dumbed down to electrical, electrical engineering to be an electronics technician. So repairing equipment. Um, I have landed a part-time job through that assisting an electrical engineer who is building a large format analog console for a studio in Memphis, um, which we are supposed to deliver, hand deliver in March. And there's a rumor, I, he hasn't asked me directly, but the, some of the other people on the project have said that, that the boss thinks I'm going with him to Memphis, where I'm like, no, no. <laughs> this is the United States? I'm going with you to the, to the States. So he hasn't directly asked me, and I'm still kind of like, maybe you'll listen to this, Tim. Sorry, I can't go with you to Memphis. Um, I would love to. I wish that I could because what a wonderful experience to go install a console in a multi-million dollar recording studio. But, um, you know, I really can't afford to quarantine for two weeks after. And also, what is going to happen in the States? I can't go to the States. That is crazy talk, right? But so anyway, that's that's one career direction. Um, I'm also still really trying to develop the recording studio. I definitely need to do some work on it technically and marketing. I've had the, I've had the web site half made since April last year. And you know, it's just, it's just a please come back later link right now. <laughs> it's been like that for a year. I just have to finish the website. I have to put my portfolio on it. And then, then I have to like tell people that I, I do music recording, come and work with me and then maybe things will happen. So that I'm really hopeful that would be my ideal would be to just be a recording engineer. And of course the electrical engineering would just help me maintain the equipment. Um, I've, I've got my hands in so many other pies though. Like I'm assisting uh, Tyler Crawford, who is the repair tech at Studio Economique here in Montreal um, on repairing pro audio equipment. So learning how to do that. And then I'm also working with another group, uh, some web developers and like a tech startup on a music for syncing to video website platform to make it easier for artists to sell their music to video people or game designers or podcasters or whatever. So like a better interface that's more like Bandcamp specifically for sync. So we're working on that. Right. Hmm. Hopefully that'll be good for everybody. So for non-insiders, um, sync in this case is not like the synchronization of audio to video, but rather uh, people getting um, getting their music used in commercial productions and getting paid off the back of that. So uh, Reed is building a platform to get people paid for their music, which is what, well, every artist needs now because, well, nobody's buying albums, folks, myself included, because I'm broke as shit. So exactly. <laughs> what, what I said a few months ago was like, we need to identify where consumers or where any market is putting money into music. What markets are able to put money into music? And one of them is video and one of them is gaming and another one is podcasting and but how do how do artists get their music to those people and receive money for it? And there's sort of like there's a bit of a missing link there. And so hopefully we've identified something that can bring some money in because streaming sure don't do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And is it is it Spotify now that is 
uh, it's really creepy. I saw something about they want to release yeah. like an AI that can actually like like detect people's moods and shit. And I was like, uh, I don't know. Do. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know if I should speak ill, but it's creepy. I know, right? Don't speak ill of the machines. Um. <laughs> <laughs> the algorithms are coming. I'm <laughs> going to know. Yeah, I don't. I don't like it. I'm leery of AI myself, and, and I, I a lot of people in my industry in the tech industry are involved actively in developing AI and machine learning. Um, and I'm uncomfortable with it. I think it's unsafe. I not because I think that the machines are going to rule the world, but I think that there's machines are fallible and they break and even if they are learning our ways, they're still going to fault. And if we put too much stock in them for how we function, you know, mm -hmm. the faults could be far more catastrophic when they do fail. And so, I don't know, I kind of want to just get like a hut on some land far away from anything involved with AI and just like live out the rest of my life on my little farm. Maybe mm. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, that actually reminded me of an article and, and maybe I'll send it to you, Rena. It was on the CBC yeah. earlier this week. I shared it with Jordan. Uh, it's about a guy who, um, who has ADHD and has been living sort of quasi off the grid for many years and this filmmaker and he became friends and he's made this documentary about him. But he talks about how being in the natural world is like the distractions of the natural world or what we're actually kind we're built for and so he doesn't take any medication anymore and he's living a life kind of on his own terms he goes tree planting for six months of the year and then I think he just kind of couch surfs the rest of the time but it just sounded so blissy to me oh you know? totally it's so interesting I've never thought about that before read anything about it so I would love to read about it but about the notion that we are built for the natural world that's mm -hmm. a really interesting concept because I've been thinking about this a lot lately like what are we built for? And I think that like neurodivergence is probably not a mental illness or like a problem. Mm -hmm. It's only considered an illness because we struggle to function in the current construct of society. Right. And it's like, it's it, in my case, I found ways for it to be powerful and advantageous. And so what is the application for neurodivergence? Like what are the actual positive applications for it and what circumstances does it thrive under? And, you know, how do we redevelop the way that we look at, at function in order to put people where they function better so <laughs> of course i have adhd so i'm not going to do any more research on that or like develop anything but throwing that out there to anyone who doesn't have adhd that's interested in it go ahead and build on that and maybe come up with a better system but you know i myself i'm just going to go back to doing the millions of things i'm already doing <laughs> So speaking of AI and ML, I want to go back to that for a sec. Uh, excuse me, um, artificial intelligence and machine learning. As you say, the problem isn't necessarily that the machines are going to take over. The problem is that the machines are trained by people. And people are deeply, deeply flawed intentionally and unintentionally. People are ignorant. People are intentionally racist. People do all sorts of, of things for all sorts of uh, accidental and intentional reasons. And in trying to train these sets off of, you know, keyword data that have been created by people, it's really kind of trash because you're starting with a pool of like 40% polluted terms. So if you're training an AI off of these things with these either inaccurate or sometimes out like just straight up racist keywords, yeah. um, those the, the suggestions that those algorithms generate are going to be as prejudiced as the data sets that trained them, whether they're built that way or not. So That's extremely interesting. That hadn't occurred to me. Humans possess the capacity 
capacity for evil and then <laughs> impose it onto the machines. Damn it. We're, we're so problematic. Just get rid of us. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> All right. That's it. I'm rooting for COVID now. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I love people. <laughs> um, I think that, you know, there's something that uh, Jordan and I talk about uh, quite often too, is that empathy and compassion are a big part of this ADHD piece is that we tend to be even more attuned to um, the well-being and or the suffering of other people. Do you find that that's, that's another aspect that you find um, is a strength for you? Or do you find that sometimes can be quite painful to really feel that so acutely? Oh, a bit of both. Hmm. A bit of both. It's, I, I, I think that more often than not, I consider it a strength because it, I don't know, I'd rather be compassionate than the other way, than not be compassionate, than be, than be a dick, you know? Um, I do recognize that it frequently puts me out of, of opportunities or situations that I could benefit from in other ways if I didn't give a shit about how other people felt. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, you know, like that, that example of like, that, the example that I used with the strokes and Julian demanding the runner where I was like, I made the choice in that moment to be like, well, my compassion for this poor kid that has been driving all day is to just let him buy the thing and come back instead of making him drive all the way here for an hour and then drive all the way back for another hour to do the thing. And so, you know, I'll, I'll always choose to make somebody feel better if I can and rather than make them feel worse. Um, and so... But it doesn't always fare well for me. But I don't really care about me in the same way that I care about other people. <laughs> <laughs> and the eyebrows go up. It's like, like, wait a minute, there's something flawed about that. shouldn't do that. But I'd rather be that way than not that way. You know, like I'd, I would rather be someone who puts other people before myself because I think that there aren't enough people who do that in the world. And the more I do it, the more joy I see in the people around me. And that's more valuable to me than making myself happy all the time it makes me happy to make other people happy <laughs> so. yeah having a sense of community and being connected as opposed to the kind of like rugged self-serving individualism that we're taught to believe is the only way to succeed right yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is really a pile of crap but yeah, yeah totally totally <laughs> so something that i'm kind of seeing as like a common factor with everything in understanding myself as a person with ADHD is that everything is pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. And something that I then realize is pattern recognition over and over and over again is another thing that you and I have common, which is improv. Now, you haven't done it for a number of years, as I understand it. I got back into it after like a 15-year break about four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I was just kind of curious if you had anything that you wanted to talk about with that at all. Oh, man. I, I sort of just realized, so when COVID hit and I stopped working and I was like, well, I need to think about what I really want to do with my life. I realized that I was truly happy when I was in theater. And and the thing that got me into theater in general was improv in, in junior high and high school. And I, I thought I was really good at it. We were really like our little improv team at my high school was really great. And I just loved it so much. And then I, I abandoned acting and theater entirely because in order to do it at university, I would have had to audition and, uh, and the rejection fear that imposter syndrome, like totally overtook me where I was like, I don't want to get up and audition and potentially be rejected. I would rather not even try than be rejected. And so I gave that up and now I'm like, Oh, I really should have stuck with it. I think I would have enjoyed that more than what I chose 
chose to, to do with my life. I definitely would have enjoyed that more than what I chose to do with my life. And, you know, now I'm, I'm a 40 year old woman who isn't going to get a job as an actress <laughs> very often, or like, maybe I will, but I definitely wasted these years where I was like young and pretty, um, doing stuff that it didn't matter. It was actually a detriment to be a pretty girl <laughs> in the, in the audio engineering field. It was definitely a detriment. Um, whereas I could have been acting and it could have been valuable. And so I think I will, I've, I've decided when I finish my electronics program, I'm going to reward myself with an improv class. That's my decision. <laughs> nice. <laughs> See where it goes. Maybe I'll, I'll be back in the, in the theater and again in the next 20 years. <laughs> um, that's actually reminding me of something I was curious about, um, as being a woman um, with ADHD and hormones. And I don't know how much you've studied about this or read about this, but apparently estrogen is a bit of a shit show, isn't it? Because it'll fluctuate and go up and down. And I'm wondering if you've had any experiences or anything you'd like to share about that. Okay, so that's something I have not even known about is the relationship between hormones and ADHD. I'm going to have to read about that now that you've mentioned it as something. And maybe you'll enlighten me a little bit more now. But now that you mention it, like I cannot take estrogen-based birth control or even progesterone birth control, whichever, either one, it didn't matter. No birth control could I take. Literally made me suicidal. Could not tolerate wow. hormonal birth control. Um, and yeah, now, now as far as hormones go, I've been on a, a non-hormone IUD for a long time and definitely feel way better than when I was like, it, it, it keeps you essentially without a menstrual cycle, hormonal cycle mm. at all. And so definitely mentally way more stable mm. with that. And so that probably mm. has a lot to do with it. So it's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. I'll, I'll definitely send you some information and my, my experience, because I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, was that yes birth control pills um made me lose my like lose it even more pms endometriosis all these all these different issues and uh, apparently yeah like the the way that estrogen affects our brain and the production of dopamine is if you're deficient in it uh, then you you get even less right so pms would just be you know mm -hmm. horrific for many women uh, menopause is really bad for a lot of women so yeah it's 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 interesting that so few medical professionals make that connection because partly because a lot of the the studies that have been done have been focused on um males right and and across medicine that's just true and unfortunately you know that's just that just is right uh, so it is a real deal and also things like mare's urine and stuff like that like my background with that has been awful right and you know i actually i was um editing a manuscript from somebody who was involved in funding premarin at some point he actually thought this person i won't name him he actually thought he was saving women he really truly thought that by giving women the, the urine of horses that, that, that he was saving them from themselves yeah anyway that's a whole other i won't get into this whole <laughs> thing but like wow dude really guy with a penis you really know what's going on okay oh, sorry science has been been so misguided so many times oh goodness gracious anyway yeah it's um I'm, I'm glad to hear that you've got something that's working for you though yeah it's definitely working for me but it's something that I recognize is 
totally different for everyone's body. Like every, every woman has a different type of baseline hormone mm-hmm. re- regulated structure. Like, and so who knows what kind of birth control and how it's going to affect you is, is going to be the best for you. So um, I, it took me a long time to figure out what was best for me. I actually, I actually ran with nothing for 15 years of my life of like, well, hope for the best, <laughs> no birth control, hoping for the best <laughs> because that was better than being suicidal. And so it was like, well, worst case scenario, I end up with a baby, I guess, or, or an abortion. I'm not opposed to abortion for anybody out there. Pro-choice, <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, also couldn't tolerate birth control. So, but it's good that I found something that worked. So. Yeah. So how long ago now, Rena, was it that you were diagnosed? I guess I would have been 34, so six years. Okay. So I'm curious, like, you've had a lot longer of a perspective on this than Robbie and I have, and we're both still in uh, a pretty emotional, angry, and grieving state at points about this stuff. And I'm curious, (laughs) what's something that you now are able to look back on that you would like to have told yourself six years ago when you were going through all of this kind of processing? Ooh, that's really interesting. Because I don't think I had a grieving phase or like a shock phase about it. For me, it was only positive. Um, and, and I think that comes from having discovered it out of like the worst experience I could yeah. possibly have in my life where, you know, and then to, to still be depressed after that and then have a diagnosis that was identified as probably the source of my depression. All, all that I saw in front of me was opportunity. And I didn't have any, I don't have any like regret for not discovering it sooner because it, I didn't even notice it, it you know, and, and would I have done a lot better at some things if I I had known the things I know now, maybe, but there was no way for me to have sought anything out. There was no reason for me to have sought anything out. I wouldn't have made a, a different decision. There's, I can't think of a point where I would have been like, I should go see a psychiatrist. It just didn't happen when I was a kid. And so I don't have, I don't have any regrets around it. And there was no disappointment or like shock at discovering that I had it or like shame or anything. I don't feel any shame about it. Um, I think because I don't see it as an illness at all. You know, like Mm. I really do see it as like a skill. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's certainly like, and that's something I wanted to do another short episode about was like, I have been, like I said, I've been in my feelings about it, certainly, but I'm also coming to appreciate all the ways that it makes me different in a positive way. Um, yeah. Like all the kind of pattern recognition stuff, I'm realizing that factors into like literally everything that I do and enjoy is all about what does and doesn't belong in sets yeah. <laughs> and like yeah. organizing things. Um, and so that's, that's super interesting to me. But yeah, it's just things like, I also recognize that that same fear that you were talking about that kept you from auditioning and ever trying out acting. That's why, you know, like I was in basically one job for 15 years because I was like, okay, like I got in the door here and like, I'm going to be found out any second now. So what I definitely should not do is like apply for jobs that are (laughs) further up the ladder at other companies and things like that. And so again, I, I had a very rewarding and enjoyable career, but I also recognize that I could have pushed myself much further, but I didn't believe in myself. So Right. That's a really good point, actually. So maybe, maybe there were things that I would have done differently if I didn't have this. But I, I prefer having it to not having it, I think. 
like from, from having had the medication experience and being like, oh, this is there was with each type of medication, the first two or three days were magical mm. in terms of like, oh, this is how normal people think. I can just pour a cup of coffee and I'm only thinking about the coffee. This is really cool. You know, and I was like, oh, and then I can look at my to do list and choose a thing to do. And then I do it. This is crazy. And and so I had a couple of days that were like, I was elated and happy and able to do what I was doing and still didn't feel like I was missing anything or whatever. And then the symptoms would build up, the side effects would build up and it would, it would get crappy for me just because my metabolism is pretty intense. And, and then when I tried to go back to work was like, well, what's the point of even trying to do medication? Because my job requires me to, to operate in a distracted manner <laughs> so mm. i'd have to to learn to do it and build spreadsheets to control my life <laughs> so that i don't forget anything <laughs> so speaking of spreadsheets that's something mm-hmm. that i'm doing a lot of is literally databasing my entire life with Airtable and syncing all that shit in calendars and project management software and blah 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 and so i'm curious like do you have any sort of organizational strategies for people out there do I? So I've spent the last year because as a tour manager, all of the information for me started going into spreadsheets because I need to see it all. So it would be a giant spreadsheet for the whole tour that I could zoom out on and it could have different tabs and different like that you click on this cell and it's going to go to that page and it's going to link to that because I needed a map where I could see it all at one time and and be able to like split my focus. And from doing that for tours, once tours canceled. I was like at home trying to figure out what to do with myself and how to organize my life and having all these ideas that I couldn't keep track of. And I was like, well, why don't I just put it in a tour book? I'll just put it in a tour book. So I started using my tour book spreadsheet as my day planner. And, um, you, I think, you know, Nikki Reimer, she's also ADHD and she sees an ADHD coach. And she mentioned to me one day that her coach said, so ADHD people, like to have structure, but they get bored so quickly with their structure that their structure has to change. And so this is why you buy a day planner and you're like, this day planner is great. And you use it for four days. And then on day five, you're like, I don't really need this day planner anymore. And you throw and you kind of forget about it. And then you're like, wait, this day planner that's laid out with weeks is the big page is what I need, you know? And, and so that changes. But the glory of the spreadsheet is it's totally adaptable. So when I'm like, I have an idea, what if there was pages in between the days where I could put my meeting notes or there was a page for each sector of my life that I could click and drag to another spot. And so I just like, it just gets to evolve with me as I need the structure to change. I can just change the structure, but I don't lose any of the content in the document. Like I did when I tried to function on paper or like bullet journaling was really good because you can build your own bullet journal structure. But then of course you're locked into that structure once you've made it for the next six months. Right. And then, so then you're like, well, fuck that bullet journal. Cause I'm bored with it. You know, but now my life control document is really, great and I'll slip off of it for a couple of days when I am bored with the structure like I won't look at it for a couple of days but then it's still there when I go back to it and I can just change it to what I need in a better way than like trying to return to a notebook that I didn't write things down in for four days where I, I get disappointed when I open it up again this has mm. been this has been a lot easier to to deal with it doesn't feel so bad to just like right click and hide the sheet when I didn't write anything in the sheet you know <laughs> it's not as bad as ripping the paper out of the notebook <laughs> That's so funny, too, that like it's interesting because there's this this another thing that I'm recognizing is ADHD is a compulsion towards completion. And so when we have those little gaps in those things, uh, it really does weigh on us in a way that it doesn't for neurotypical people. And I think that's also why a lot of ADHD 
ADHD people are very ritualistic about beginning things because we want this project to go smooth from the start. So we're going to start it on a Monday that also falls on the first of the month like today is um, because that's like the optimal possible starting point to launch a new venture or whatever. It feels very clean. But then, you know, if five days later it's fallen off the wagon, then... How, how many times have I thought of a project and decided to map it out perfectly and started the process of mapping it out perfectly and had this vision in my head of how it would flow perfectly and then lost it as soon as I started to implement the vision where there's like no reason not to. I created this brilliant structure that if I would have just stuck to it, my project would have been phenomenal. And I'll still like muster something together by the end of it, but I don't stick to the brilliant structure that I develop. And if I could, I think I would be really unstoppable. And so maybe this is about like, maybe people like me are destined to be managers who design systems for teams, you know, and they're like, this is the system. And so then we always do the same thing on the first Monday of every month, but then we send off our team with the structure to go function in. And then we mm-hmm. go to a new structure, you know, like research and development or whatever that kind of realm might be more applicable than actually trying to create things ourselves. <laughs> just create the structure within which other people can create them but yeah. that very much dovetails with a lot of the reading that i've done that says that adhd people are uh ideas people and not yeah. detail oriented mm. where i don't know i i'm also very detail oriented but exactly i don't know you can it, it and it really depends on what brain cycle i'm in mm. whether i'm detail oriented or big picture oriented or just like inspiration oriented um, and I, I think what I'd like to do now that I'm really analyzing myself more is figure out how each of those brain cycles really feels and learn how to adapt my schedule to apply them better. You know, like instead of planning my week out in advance and planning my days out in advance, do more of like, okay, today or at this moment, I feel detail oriented. So, okay, what's something in my list of to do's that's, that requires detail work. I'll try to do that today. So so I don't know. I need to sort of develop this plan further, but it is something I'm thinking about of like, I need to learn more about how to appropriately apply my brain function at the right time. So. Yeah. Um, energetic scheduling is something I've been seeing a, a little bit about with the ADHD brain here and there. You know, lots of folks talk about the timers and stuff like that, and those are great. But what I'm realizing is that uh, yeah, I need to be very specific, but also fluid about it. Because yeah. if I lock myself into, okay, 9am from 10pm, I have to write a 1000 words. If that's not where my brain is at that point, and it would be better for me to vacuum the apartment instead, I need to kind of give okay. myself permission to do that without going into a, a self-loathing spiral because I didn't exactly. stick to the, <laughs> stick to the plan. Yourself, allowing yourself to have fluidity. And just allowing yourself to not be what you expect of yourself all the time either is, is another thing, you know, just sort of this forgiveness for not not being what you expect. And I don't want to say like not being perfect or not being up to standards because like everything, all of the aspects of my energy are useful in the right situation. It just sometimes mm-hmm. I don't expect them to be the way they are. And that's when I get angry at myself, but I'm learning not to. <laughs> yeah. And our brains don't exist in a nine to five paradigm, right? Like we're, we're really not linear. No. Like, like people in general, like, it's just like, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, um, I don't know. Did you have anything else that you wanted to talk about, Rena? Is there anything that we kind of missed? I feel like we covered a lot of ground. Though. I think we, we covered pretty much everything that I can I can think of. And you know, I'm still really learning about this 
myself. Um, and it's for me, it's all kind of just trial and error because I do think that everyone's brain is different. Um, you know, just because two people have ADHD doesn't mean that their ADHD impacts them in the same way. Or, you know, it, there, we could also have a lot of similarities to somebody who's not neuro, neurodivergent at all or whatever. And so I'm really just like trial and error with myself to figure out um, what works and what doesn't. And that's one of the blessings of this year is it's given me the time and the space to do a lot of trying um, and, and redeveloping. And so hopefully, you know, not, not put pressure on, on myself. And I guess that's, that's the only thing I want to say to anybody with ADHD, especially people that are discovering it for the first time in their lives as adults is like, don't pressure yourself to, to like fix this. This doesn't need to be fixed. Just like try to enjoy what it is and learn it for yourself. So, yeah. That's beautifully said. Wow. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> so I was going to get you to run down a big list of plugs for me, but before I do that, I realized that we have not talked about one facet of your creativity that's also a money earner and a community builder for you, which is your creative work as child actress and your oh, right. Patreon page. My, my music and my Patreon. Yeah, so I guess my music is sort of more of a hobby than anything. I mean, I've always been a musician writing songs since I was a little kid and playing playing instruments and writing songs. And it's always sort of been a hobby. Um, I would have liked to have made it not be a hobby. And now looking back, there was like no reason that I couldn't have been a professional musician or like, or like signed a record deal a long time ago. I just, I guess the imposter syndrome, fear of rejection, whatever was a reason that I never put it out there. Um, and... I don't know. So with, with COVID hitting, one of the things I decided to do was make a Patreon page for my own personal music. And so that's been really great. It has paid for my groceries every month and been a true lifesaver. Like like the the CERB got all my rent paid, my rent and my bills paid. And then I was like, how am I going to eat? And then the Patreon <laughs> got me food. So <laughs> so that was that was great. And and also it kept me creating, which has been awesome. Like when we finish here, I have to finish my February 1st song that I was supposed to post this morning that I have to post tonight before I go to bed, but I just got to go mix it. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> but yeah. Well, um, yeah. Why don't you run down that URL as well as the, all the other places that people can find you and your work? Oh boy. Okay. Well, you can find me on Patreon as child actress. Uh, you can find me on all social media platforms, any social media platform you can imagine. I am there as sound pony and or child actress. Um, I try to keep the sound pony stuff a little bit more audio related. And I try to keep the child actress stuff more of like whatever <laughs> music related. But like that's sort of where I let myself go off the deep end. You know, it's like my main is sound pony. And then my alternative uh, lifestyle <laughs> comments <laughs> is supposed to be child actress. Um, although sometimes I'll forget which one I'm logged in as and I'll post something super trashy on my main one. But, <laughs> but sound pony and child actress you can follow me at those two handles literally anywhere and if people want to get in touch to have you mix their project or something like that how can they do that you can reach out to me through social media or you can email me at soundladyrk that is soundlady and my initials rk at gmail.com that's the fastest and easiest way to me Rena Kozak, thank you so much for opening up to the two of us as well as your audience and uh, for your friendship. Geez, these last 23 or something odd years. <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thanks so much for thinking of me. Thanks for doing this. I can't wait to, to listen to more. 
Hey, thanks so much for listening today. Thanks so much to Rena for joining us on the show and to you for listening. And if you'd like more from us, you can follow us on various social platforms, which are all linked in the episode description and on our Anchor site, anchor.fm slash holy shit, I have ADHD. And as of this week, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash holy shit, I have ADHD. Now, um, we are always going to keep the content completely free. Everything that comes out, the writing and the audio, etc., will be free for everyone because we think that it's important for people to access this, even if they don't have money. I certainly have access so much useful free content, especially on the mental health front in 2020. As a very broke person who doesn't have the resources to pay for some of this stuff. Um, but if you would like to help contribute, uh, to pay for this social media manager software and some other things, as well as, you know, maybe even give us a little bit of walking around money, you can do that on that Patreon page, patreon.com slash holy shit I have ADHD. And the other way you can help is by letting your friends know if you really enjoy these episodes, uh, do spread the word. If you can subscribe on your podcast channel or platform of choice and, you know, reviews or, you know, if you feel like you got a little time and space to do that, we always appreciate that too. So uh, we're just really glad you could uh, tune in and hang out with us today because this platform or this podcast means a lot to both of us. 